Welcome to the Yogi MD Podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. How was changing her mantra from strong, independent, and healthy to rather optimistic, curious, and resilient, a key moment of transformation for our guest today, Dawn Ripola. Tune in to find out how Dawn made this realization after she was diagnosed with a chronic fibrosing lung disease. After that exacerbation, after being in the hospital, I thought the things that are on my list that are someday I'm going to do, I need to start doing those things because someday is now. And that was transformational because I, I was not very confident. Like I've always been confident of my abilities, but I walked into this situation where I, I had no confidence. I wasn't sure if I was going to make it for the full four hour shift. Did I have enough oxygen with me? You know, were people going to be weird or mean because I was, you know, wearing oxygen and then I went on to work in and, you know, do my shift and it went really well. And I went home and I was exhausted because it was the first time that I had been on my feet for four straight hours. But I was also just elated because I thought, I can do this. I can create value. I still have purpose. In 2009, doctors diagnosed you with a life-changing chronic disease. Can you please tell us that story? In late 2008, early 2009, I was training for a half marathon. And I, my times were actually getting worse, which is not the way that's supposed to go. And so finally, I had a four-mile run one morning that left me nearly passed out on the side of the road. And I thought, okay, I've got to do something. I need to figure out what's going on here. So um, went to my primary care doc. She uh, didn't know. She thought maybe I had pneumonia. Um, so we did antibiotics for a month. And then she said, well, that hasn't cleared it up. So why don't you go see an allergist? And I went in and I'm really pleased to tell you that after a full battery of allergy tests, that my only allergy is to tumbleweeds. And that's actually a thing. <laughs> it still didn't explain why I couldn't walk 200 feet from my car to the door of my office. And so I finally got an appointment with a pulmonologist. He did a CAT scan. And I had I'd left the hospital uh, after the CAT scan. I didn't realize I probably needed to stay around. And I got this call and the doctor said, the doctor's, the doctor's office said, um, where are you? And I said, well, I'm in my car. I'm, I just went out to lunch. And she said, you need to come back to the hospital immediately. Um, you, have, you have many and large blood clots in your lungs and you need to go directly to the ER. So the initial problem or the acute problem was that I had blood clots in my lungs, which is really manageable. But I was really lucky to have a pulmonologist who really looked at those scans and said, 
there's something else here that you need to pay attention to, and it's something called pulmonary fibrosis. And I was, when, because I was dealing with the blood clots, that, that diagnosis just sort of went in one ear and out the other, and I didn't really think much about it. But he said, we need to, you know, monitor you, so we're going to look at this, and I want to see you on an annual basis. And what he was thinking in the back of his mind was, well, maybe you would have, you, and pulmonary fibrosis means that you have scarring in your lungs. And so it's possible to have those and not, and them not get any worse. But you could also have a chronic condition. And it turns out that I did. So in 2014, I had another little incident. I had a minor surgery. And then following that, I had um, pneumonia. I had actual pneumonia this time. And they did another CAT scan. And they saw that there had been progression with the fibrosis. That means that it got worse. So he said at that point, it's time to refer you to an, a specialist in something they call interstitial lung disease. And he sent me down to National Jewish Health, which is here in Denver. So at that point, I had a new pulmonologist, and he is an internationally recognized expert in interstitial lung diseases. And he explained to me that that was an umbrella diagnosis, that there were six what he called flavors, and that he was going to help figure out which flavor I had. And so, you know, like up until that point, I didn't really think about it. I went out and did a little searching on the web. I worked in healthcare, so I asked some folks but pulmonary fibrosis at that time wasn't well understood and there wasn't a lot of information available. So in 2014, he went through a battery of diagnostic tests and it took about six months and a lung biopsy. And he finally was able to tell me that what I had is something called chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And we just call that CHP and that it was a disease that has no treatments and no cures, and that it was likely to progress or get worse over time. And um, the, the best that he could do is he could give me immunosuppressants, which would help keep the immune response in my lungs under control. Um, because when your lungs get mad, and they, you know, your immune response starts, that's when the fibrosis can worsen. And, um, and he told me to stay as healthy as possible. And that was the best that we could do at that point in time. That was 2014. So that was the first sort of five years of this journey. And then um, I have to tell you that I did a little more research, still didn't find much information out on CHP. There was a little more information on pulmonary fibrosis because there was research being done in the field, but it was for a different kind of interstitial lung disease. And so, um, again, I just kind of ignored that diagnosis and I went on and I lived my life and I did my, th did my stuff and I really didn't let it change me other than I took the medicines... I used oxygen at first um, 
because I needed that after the lung biopsy. But as soon as I didn't really feel like I needed it much, I did got rid of it. And then after taking the medications for a year or so, I stopped taking the medications because I didn't see how it was helping and it I didn't like the side effects. When you say that you didn't let it change your life, what do you mean by that? I am uh, easily identified as a type A personality. <laughs> High achiever. I am an entrepreneur. I've started four companies in my lifetime. One of them I was running at the time, and I ran that business for about 20 years. Um, and I started it from scratch and built it up to a multi-million dollar company. And there's less than 2% of women entrepreneurs who do that. So I was very high driving. I was very, I had a lot of really ambitious goals and I set my, the bar very high in my business life. And then in my personal life, the people that I hung out with, uh, my crowd, the way I like to talk about it is we didn't just say we were going to go for a run. We say, oh, well, we're going to do a half marathon. We would go biking, but we didn't just, you know, take the bikes out and go on the bike path for five or six miles. No, we were going to ride a century. And when we went hiking, like we didn't just go up the little mountain trails behind my house. We had to go climb 14ers. So you can see that that like just reach for the reach for the top, go for the goal, go, go for the gusto, you know, all of those words that you want to use to describe that. That was me. And I didn't change any of that. I climbed in the midst of this diagnosis. I climbed Mount Evans, which is a 14,000 foot peak here in Colorado, um, with a couple of girlfriends and it nearly killed me. I, my Lips turned blue. My fingers were purple. I had all of the classic signs of hypoxia. My friends continued to push me as we were on that hike saying, do your yoga breathing. Um, you know, you just need to take deeper breaths. And we got through the hike and I lived. But when I realized later, I was just completely hypoxic at the end of that, that during that hike. So that's what I meant by I just live my life. What kind of personal satisfaction or reward were you gaining from identifying yourself as a high power type A achiever? I got a lot of personal satisfaction. I'm internally motivated from setting goals, but I realize that I had a lot of external influence on that because when you can tell people like, oh, well, I climbed a 14er this weekend or, oh, well, we ran, you know, a half marathon, you know, in Florida last week, or I ran the, you know, whatever race, because I had a goal of running a half marathon in every state at the time. Those just sounded like really big achievements that people would be like, oh, well, I really respect that. Those are really, really hard things. I had no idea that those things are not really all that hard. Hmm. Say more about that. So, I mean, it's one thing when you're super healthy and you can push your body. And oh, 
I don't mean to minimize that. Like it's not easy to run a half marathon. It's not easy to run a marathon. It's not easy to, you know, do a hundred mile race or whatever. I'm not, I don't mean that. But those were nowhere near the biggest challenges that I faced in my life. And I, and I hadn't faced the really big challenges until my diagnosis. And that's what I mean that those hard things, those were just choices. Like you, I chose to do that. The really hard thing came when there was an external influence that happened. I didn't have a choice. I got CHP. Like it was, it just became part of my life. It's not like I went out and said, ooh, I want to have that disease. No choice there. So when the, when the circumstances are outside of your control and you have to reinvent your life, that's when I think that the really, that's, those, that's what I mean by a really hard thing. I'm going to make a bold assertion and say that your personality, who you are, your core values and your core beliefs, your center didn't change, even though your external circumstances did in a very big way. Were you able to begin to transition to the acceptance that you and I have talked about by reconnecting and reminding yourself of who you really were, despite whatever else is going on outside? Fundamentally, I didn't change. I think some people go, think that they don't have resilient, they aren't resilient. And maybe they aren't, right? But if you had an, if you had a natural core, there was something there. Like I was optimistic, curious, resilient, my words now. Those were actually words who just, that described me previously, like Don 2.0 versus Don 3.0. But they were not the words that I put to the world. The words I put to the world were strong, healthy, independent. Now my words are optimistic, curious, and resilient. And those actually create two different kinds of thinking and attitudes around the world. Because when you're strong, healthy, and independent, that means that you sort of stand on your own two feet and you don't realize how much you need the people around you. And when you have words like optimistic, resilient, and curious, those actually welcome help from other people, from my point of view. So in 2018, things were going pretty well. In the beginning of 2018, I had what's called an exacerbation or a serious and sudden worsening of the disease. I um, went to my pulmonologist for a, an appointment thinking that I was going to go in and they were going to give me some antibiotics and I was going to go on my merry way. And in reality, what happened is I walked in the door, the nurse practitioner took one look at me, she hooked me up to an oxygen tank, I immediately felt better. She left the room, she came back and she said, I'm going to send you over to the hospital because you are having an exacerbation and I'm very, very worried about you. So I go trucking off to the hospital. My husband loads me in the car. I walk in with my green oxygen tank, looking like me and all the 80-year-olds in my peer group, right? Not. And they admit me to the hospital and I am having 
this immune response and my lungs are inflamed and I'm on oxygen 24-7. I spend four days in the hospital, IV antibiotics, IV steroids, they're doing everything they can to get things under control. And they send me home and all of a sudden, I'm not strong, I'm not healthy, I'm not independent, I am now weak and I am sick and I am dependent on oxygen and I'm dependent on my husband to take care of me. And I went to the doctor a couple weeks later and he said, you have lost 12% of your lung function in this exacerbation. He's like, fingers crossed, you won't have to stay on oxygen 24-7, but what's likely has happened here is that you've now gone from not needing, not requiring supplemental oxygen to requiring it when you exercise and when you sleep. And that moment changed my life because he looked at me and he said, you've got to start taking this disease seriously because I really don't want to lose you. And then he left the room and my husband looked at me and my husband got tears in his big blue eyes and said, for the first time ever, I am really scared. And we didn't really realize how insidious this disease was. And we didn't realize how much we had to take it seriously. So I just shattered. I didn't know what to do. I had gotten so stiff that in my, my independence and my strength, that I didn't have the kind of lost touch with that core of resiliency and what you have to do in order to bounce back. And so I just went into a really dark place. Um, words like anxiety and depression were never anything that anyone would use to describe me. And, um, and I started to experience that in my life. And at one point, I finally told my husband, I said, you know, I, I think he just really would be better off without me. And he was like, he, he was shocked that he hadn't realized how down I had gotten. And he reassured me that that really was not the case. And that he really needed me to kind of fight through this and to come back to him. Was part of your depression and anxiety caused not only by the physical manifestations of your disease process, but maybe aggravated by grief for your old self, who you described as independent, strong, and healthy? Yeah, so I began to work my way back. I said, what can I do? I tried counseling. That actually didn't work very well for me. So I started doing what I do, which is I read. I'm a lifelong learner, and I read everything I can. And what I realized is I had lived for nine years in denial, which is the first stage of grief. And I was angry, which is sort of the second stage, and I, and I thought, I can't live as an angry person. So I thought, well, I need to forgive. And so I decided to research that and find out, well, what does forgiveness really mean? 
And how do you do that? And I found the work of Fred Luskin. He talks about forgiveness has to start with the grieving process. So you have to grieve and then you can forgive. So that was when I realized that I'd spent nine years in denial. Really, Dawn? But I started to examine that and I, you could see why, you know, like there's no treatment, there's no cure. It really doesn't affect much of your life. You can just keep powering on, work through it. What I realized was that I was really angry with my body and with myself because I felt like I'd let myself down and that my body had betrayed me. And really neither of those things are true. And I lived a pretty healthy life, you know, moderation in most things. And I followed the general guidelines and that kind of thing. So this wasn't my fault and it wasn't my body's fault. It just was. That was one of the, like one of the really early things that, that happened as I started to recover my sense of self is that I forget myself. And um, Dr. Luskin says, has this great line, he says, when you need to forgive, it's just that you got no where you expected yes. And that realization helped me start to change my story. So my story, you know, initially was why did this happen to me? And then I shifted that narrative and my story became what if this was the best thing that ever happened to me? What if this illness created a space for me to really examine my life and my life's work and really think about, like, am I living on purpose? Am I doing what I should be doing with my life? Now, as I look at that reframe, I think that's a much more powerful place to live and a much more um, healthy place to live. And that helped me as I began to figure out, okay, well, how do I deal with depression and anxiety? Because people who have a lung problem kind of were naturally anxious. Any, as anybody who knows who's ever not been able to catch their breath, that's very anxiety producing, right? And a lot of the medications like the immunosuppression and that kind of thing, contribute to feelings of depression. Prior to 2018, the way that I coped with everything was through exercise. You can tell, hiking, biking, running, taking bar classes, going to yoga, you know, so those were all part of my toolbox, but it was all in the physical realm. I never really thought about the mental realm and the emotional realm. And I sort of used physical activity to kind of dispel any, any of those um, negative emotions and thoughts. Now, I didn't really have that ready to hand because at best I could walk and I could walk my dogs. But I learned that now I have a new, new toolbox, like meditation is something that I do regularly. And I learned that a failed meditation is a great nap. <laughs> taken to journaling. Um, I've always loved to write and tell stories and journaling has become a really big part of my practice. Getting outside for 30 minutes a day and making sure you get into the sunshine. Um, you know, I have two large dogs and there's 
nothing like a canine to help you make sure that you get outside every day and creating a community. So how did you use your natural inclinations, your values that you described previously, those of being a lifelong learner and of curiosity, which go hand in hand, to find new purpose in your life? I began trying new things. So I was no longer a CEO. I was no longer a business owner. I was in this morass of uncomfortableness. So I just started trying new things. Like I signed up for a podcasting workshop. I attended other online education. I started to read new and different books. I started to study Stoic philosophy. I started to look at all of the people who over 50 reinvented their lives and they went out and they talked about it. One of the things I did that was particularly powerful was I started volunteering for my local botanic gardens. This is something that I had on my list of someday I am going to do this. And after the After that exacerbation, after being in the hospital, I thought the things that are on my list that are someday I'm going to do, I need to start doing those things because someday is now. And that was transformational because I, I was not very confident. Like I've always been confident of my abilities, but I walked into this situation where I I had no confidence. I wasn't sure if I was going to make it for the full four-hour shift. Did I have enough oxygen with me? You know, were people going to be weird or mean because I was, you know, wearing oxygen? And then I went on to work and, you know, do my shift, and it went really well. And I went home, and I was exhausted because it was the first time that I had been on my feet for four straight hours. But I was also just elated because I thought – I can do this. I can create value. I still have purpose. One other thing that I did during that time was I always had this story that I wasn't a very good public speaker. Anyone else would tell you that that's not true, but that was always my story. I was invited along with my husband to talk with other patients and healthcare professionals and tell our story, and we do that jointly. And that was one of the most incredibly moving and powerful things that I've ever done because I realized a couple of things. One was that it was important for other people to hear my story because that would help them get, potentially help them get diagnosed more quickly. It would also let them know that if they were feeling the effects emotionally and mentally, even worse than their physical symptoms, that that was okay that other people felt that way too. Because when I talked about my feelings of depression and anxiety, it allowed other people to kind of experience their own and say, oh yeah, I 
I, I get you. I've been there. And then the other thing was that it was an opportunity for my husband to really, I mean, he has always been right there beside me, but I always kept thinking in my story completely, oh, he might leave me because I'm not high powered anymore. I'm not, I'm not the woman that I was, but he didn't care about any of that stuff. And in every time we share our story, we just really reconfirm this deep love and commitment that we have to each other to, you know, love, honor, and cherish for the rest of our lives. And that resolve has been tested. Like we've been in the midst of, like you get a challenge like this, you get a health challenge and you, you really do see, um, you know, who shows up and he shows up and he shows up every day for me. And that was really wonderful. So 26 years on in our marriage and 30 years together, we are standing strong. When you have the ability to share your story, it really does help other people. And there's a really great opportunity to uh, give back to your community. Do you believe now that you are realizing your full potential in your life? Are you creating the impact that you want to see? (laughs) You know, how I answer that question today is... I am on the journey to realizing my full potential. I don't know that I will realize my full potential until my journey is complete, right? But I know that every day now, I feel like every day I make progress towards realizing my full potential because I feel like for the first time, I am acknowledging kind of all of those parts of your well-being of emotional, mental health, spirituality, physical health, you know, social uh, interactions, and really kind of looking at all of those things and making sure that I understand what I care about inside of each one of those, and then acting in a way that's consistent with my values and inside of each one of those. I would like to know if you have any tips for our audience specifically regarding balance. How does one strike a balance, especially with external physical challenges where you're not taking it too easy versus taking another route, which might've been pushing yourself too hard constantly. And instead choosing to always find that what I am seeing and hearing as a no strain, no gain mentality. So one of the things with a lung disease is that you have to become really self-aware. And I think this is probably true for anybody with a chronic disease or somebody who has an acute illness that then sort of turns chronic. I have to know whether I'm getting enough oxygen. And yes, there are little, there's a pulse oximeter I can put on my finger to test that. But a respiratory therapist taught me once that there are also ways that without a device that I could begin to tell how I was feeling. And she just was like, 
look at your fingers. If you have a mirror, look at your lips. Think about how you're feeling in the moment. Are you, are you, is your breath shallow? So I think that the message for people is become aware of your signs that indicate that you might be at risk or that you might be overdoing. And then learn to listen to your body. So it's not enough to just go, oh, well, the signs are there and then ignore it. Then you have to go, oh, well, then what is the thing I need to do to take care of myself? And in my situation, the thing that I need to do to take care of myself is I need to sit down and I need to catch my breath and I need to rest if I need to rest. So if you're dealing with fatigue, it's okay. Fatigue happens. Take care, do what you need to do to take care of fatigue. And I realize that I'm incredibly privileged. I want to add that because I'm safe and sound in my home and I can stay here and I have a husband who will go to the grocery store and he will do all the things that he needs to do to help me stay safe. And I know not everybody gets that. So figure out what rest looks like for you. So I have a list of four things that I consciously think about whenever I undertake an activity. And the questions are, does this serve health? Does it serve your marriage? Does it serve your family? And does it serve your purpose? And if the thing that you are doing doesn't take care of one of those four things, then stop doing it. That allowed me to say no to a lot of things that cause a lot of anxiety for me. I mean, they cause stress. And I think stress and anxiety kind of go right hand in hand. I, for example, there are people in my life that are family members that I don't enjoy spending time with. And I had a long conversation with my husband about this. I'm sorry. I just have to, to share something funny my sister told me. Family is the other F word. Indeed, no truer words were spoken. (laughs) But one of the things I did was I said, I talked about it with my husband and I just said, these people engage in conversations that I don't endorse and that make me very, very uncomfortable. And I choose not to be around them. I'm not hanging out on Christmas Day. I am not going to take that precious time Because as one of my fellow pulmonary fibrosis patients said to me one day, he said, you and I have been really lucky. And I'm like, tell me more. And he said, everyone has a line in the sand. You and I have just seen our line. Most people don't get to see their line until they're on it. Do you have anything that you'd like to ask me? You know, you've been through a life reinvention, right? Like retiring as a physician and 
as you reinvented yourself, you gave yourself the grace of the time to do that. And I just wondered, like, how long did it take? How did you think about that? You know, I'm a little curious about your journey, too. Because I think there's, there's a lot of people who engage in a reinvention. And sometimes we think that should take us like a month. And I think the reality is, like, I've been on this journey for about three years, three and a half years, or two and a half, three years. And so I just wondered, like, what is that for you? What was that like for you? It was a very long road because I didn't identify myself as any other way. I wrapped up my entire identity and my entire feeling of self-worth in that white coat. And when I didn't have it anymore, I didn't know what to do. And I thought, I really resonated with your statement about your husband wondering if he would stay around. Those types of ideas went through my head too. You know, I'm no longer the successful doctor. And so how is that going to affect my relationships? It also took a lot of time and it's still an evolution. That's the simplest answer to your question. It's an evolution. And when I framed it that way for myself, then I could make room for adjusting and I could make room for what I was stunned to realize was also a grieving process for myself. I didn't think about it that way. I had to give myself a lot of time and space to grieve properly after I recognized that I had gone through a traumatic experience of losing what I thought was my be-all, end-all, raison d'etre. And so after that happened after I had some self-compassion, then I could start to open myself to new realities and new experiences based upon my real core values, my real strengths, realizing that there were things that I did need to work on. It's not a straight line. It's a spiral. And the more I learn about myself and the more I keep coming back to my core values and my core beliefs and staying true to that and making sure that my actions always emanate from those things, then I'm okay. And I can invite things into my life that challenge me appropriately, that stimulate me appropriately, that keep me healthy and happy, and let go of the things that do not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, what you were saying that, I was thinking one other thing I would say to folks is give yourself some grace. We are typically incredibly hard on ourselves. Um, I know for me that I set really high standards for myself and I give other people all kinds of grace. And I say things to myself that I would never say to another human being. Mm -hmm. And I have learned on this journey to give myself some grace. And the moment I hear those or that negative self-talk popping up, I think 
would you say this to your best friend? And if the answer to that question is no, then I stop it, shut it down. So my final question, Dawn, thank you so very much for your time and energy and your vulnerability. What is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? Being healthy is not the absence of disease. Um, It's being at peace with my personal situation and making choices that support my efforts to live a good life. And that is healthy because it's being healthy is taking into account all the different aspects of my life. And I don't want to say keeping them in balance because I don't know that I think that, that we can really achieve actual balance. But what I can know is what I do know is that we can care for all of those different aspects and acknowledge them all and be at peace with where we are. Thank you. Well, thank you. And now it's time for the Mindful Minute. Let's meditate. Find a comfortable place to sit Lengthen your spine. Relax the muscles in your face, shoulders, hands, and feet. Notice your breath. Are you overthinking? Bring your awareness to your brain. Are you feeling emotionally charged? Bring your awareness to your heart. And now, be curious, observe, let go of judgment, notice your thoughts, and be willing to let them go. Return to the present moment. Notice your surroundings. Notice how you feel. Thanks for being here. Dear wise women, thank you for growing our community. Keep using your wisdom and emotional intelligence to share this episode with someone in your social circle who will benefit from hearing it. Your grandma and your mom need yoga. Maybe you need yoga too. I teach yoga to wise women. I believe in empowering and educating wise women to thrive on their terms at every stage of life. Let's hear what a wise woman has to say. I'm a worrier. It's a little much, I think. And yoga always calmed me down. You know, it gave me a a positive focus. Everything's going to be okay. Uh, It's just really been like a centerpiece in my life, and I didn't have that until virtual yoga. 
To learn more, connect with me at yogimd.net. And finally, podcast theme music is by my niece, Maya Bishop, on vocals, my daughter, Lizzie Kelly, on guitar and bass, yours truly on percussion, and produced by Tim Buer. Thanks for being here. See you next time.